Well, hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, The Battle of Talking Heads. Micaiah, Fear of Music is your pick. Tell us about it. Sure. It's the third album from Talking Heads. Uh, came out in 1979. Uh, it's my favorite Talking Heads record. Um, it has none of the big giant hits like Burning Down the House, but like the big Talking Fans hits like Life During Wartime and like Heaven and Memories Can't Wait. You know, the stuff that if you're a fan of Talking Heads, those are equally big hits as Burning Down the House or This Must Be the Place or um, And She Was or Road to Nowhere. Like, their that category uh but they predate mtv era and stopped making sense you know so it, it didn't have it was before the band like broke in the mainstream uh, but it, those songs also you know something had like a second life on stop making sense um and the you know so and we'll talk about that i'm sure but yeah and it's it's one that for me is the big you forgot one album because talking heads are are one of my favorite bands I listen to their full discography pretty much annually. Um, Fear of Music is a CD I keep in the car. I have most of the records except the first and the last album, all original, you know, so I, they, they mean something to me. And this album in particular means something to me, so it's very frustrating whenever you see a list and it's the one that's not there. Um, it's not on any version of the Rolling Stone 500 list, and I can't figure it. Talking Head 77 has been on the list, but not Fear of Music. Can't figure it out. It is um, on NME's top 500 that they did in 2013, somewhere in the middle. It's, I think it's like somewhere in the 200s. It's, it's not, didn't crack the top 100 by any means. Um, but it's one that I'm just like, why? And I'm someone who came to Talking Heads obviously later than most Talking Heads fans and rock critics. You know, I'm, I'm 30. Their heyday, you know, it was the late 70s and the early to mid 80s. So it's just like, well, I don't understand. Like, what would, you know, why isn't this the one that everyone is in love with? I think in, in my theory about that, the cover, I think it's, I think if you're looking at Talking Heads covers and you're thinking about, hmm, I'm going to Talking Heads um, and you're flipping through the records or you're looking at the CDs, you're not going to go for Fear of Music. Just like that cold black uh, with that like matrix green. <laughs> like it's, it's not an appealing cover. And I think that's why people don't go, go for it as often when they're discovering Talking Heads. Um, but Track for Track, I think, is their strongest album and with the number of their best songs and, and definitely my favorites. Um, so, yeah, so this one, this one for me is the, a, a real You Forgot One special because I feel like this has been kind of the forgotten album that's pushed aside by one of the great American rock bands. Now, Rob... You, on the other hand, have chosen the follow-up album, Remain in Light. So why Remain in Light over Fear of Music? So Remain in Light is the last of the three albums that Talking Heads do with producer Brian Eno. It is the album that has produced arguably their biggest song, in once in a lifetime 
And it is an album for me that it's funny that you mentioned covers that fear of music doesn't really have a great cover. I think remain in light, the best cover of, of a talking heads album. I I think the only album that comes close is more songs about buildings and food, but those, those would be the two best album covers of talking heads albums for me. And I think it's a, I think it's a more cohesive album. And in many ways, this is so much of, of the conversation that you and I often have is, do you take the album as a collection of individual pieces of art or do you take the album as a whole and remain in light works as a whole, as a whole cohesive album in ways for me that fear of music doesn't. I, I love the high points of fear of music. Izembra uh, cities, uh, life during wartime uh, memories. Can't wait. Like, there are there are high points on fear of music that I love, but fear of music feels like an inconsistent album for me in a lot of ways, uh, especially the second side of the album. Now, that being said, Remain in Light is not a perfect album either. Um, I, I think that on the second side of Remain in Light, it is a shorter album, and I think it is both thematically and, and sonically a more cohesive album. But you do have the last three songs on Remain in Light feel like it feel like a real inconsistent way to end what is otherwise a, a phenomenal album. And so for me, it's is Remain in Light if we're picking favorite Talking Heads album. That being said, it is also very close for me. Uh, Remain in Light speaking in tongues, fear of music are all very, very close together for me in terms of where I rank them among talking heads albums and where I rank them kind of in general among some of the greatest albums of all time. I think all three of those are are worthy of places, certainly in top 500 list. I don't understand how, how fear of music has not made any of the iterations of the Rolling Stone list. I think it's certainly deserving of, of being on that list. The only area where I would say I'm interested to see where this conversation goes today as we talk with our guest, Carl Wilson, is I think in preparation for this recording, Micaiah, you and I have both rewatched Stop Making Sense a number of times, as well as David Byrne's American Utopia Broadway performance. And after watching Stop Making Sense again recently... I am wholeheartedly sold on the idea that the film Stop Making Sense is better than any single album of this band that I love so much. If you're a person who's listening to this podcast and you have never heard an album by Talking Heads, instead of starting with either Fear of Music or Remain in Light, my recommendation for you would be to stop this podcast right now and go watch Stop Making Sense, which you can stream on YouTube for free. Go watch mm-hmm. Stop Making Sense, then come back and listen to this episode. And hopefully listen to Remain in Light and Fear of Music. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. But, <laughs> but, but your I, I think the best possible introduction you can have to Talking Heads is Stop Making Sense. I'm curious if we have any listeners who have never heard of Talking Heads or listened to Talking Heads. Yeah, whoever you, they may be, reveal yourselves. 
Yeah, um, you'd wonder what motive they would have to listen to this episode since, you know, battle. Because we're going to get into it. This is our first head-to-head of the season. Mm-hmm. So we're ready to go. We, we are, we are, we are amped up on talking heads. We have been doing all kinds of deep dives on these albums, the discography, the concert film. We are, we're pretty charged up. So I have a feeling um, if, if you, um, if you're unfamiliar with these albums, buckle up, baby. So that being said, we're going to take a quick break, let you hear from today's independent record store of the week, as well as our sponsor anchor. And then we will be back with guest music critic for slate, Carl Wilson. Well, it's that time for our independent record store of the week, Amoeba Music, the world's largest independent record store with three locations in Berkeley, San Francisco, and Hollywood, California. If you are interested in music, you have likely already heard about Amoeba or seen some of their videos on their YouTube channel. But you can check out their website, Amoeba.com, where they sell new and used vinyl, CDs, DVDs, Blu-rays, music and movies, and everything ships free to the United States with no minimum purchase required. You want to check out Amoeba Records for yourself and continue to support independent record stores. So my name is Carl Wilson. Um, I'm a freelance writer and editor based in Toronto. I'm the music critic for Slate. It's my main gig, along with a bunch of other side things. Um, And I wrote a book for the 33 and a Third series um, called Let's Talk About Love, which is a book about uh, Celine Dion's album of the same name and the various issues that surround it. Um, And that was quite a long time ago. And then... Um, midway between that long time ago and now we put out a, a edition of it separate from the series um, which um, includes the original text but also a new afterward by me and then a bunch of essays by other music writers and thinkers um, responding to some of the issues around taste and populism and all of the kinds of things that the book is about um, so those are my main credentials and then um I'm at Carl Zoilis on Twitter and other places. Um, so you can find me there. Um, just for one more time for our listeners, what is the name of, of that of that book? One more time. It's called Let's Talk About Love. The, there are two different subtitles. The original 33 edition, um, is the subtitle is A Journey to the End of Taste. And the expanded edition has a new subtitle, which is um, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you can pick those up wherever books are sold. We, of course, want to encourage you, listener, uh, to pick up a copy of that book at your local independent retailer if you can. Um, but of course, those are also available on Amazon and everywhere else that you purchase books. 
But Carl, the reason we have you here tonight is to talk all things talking heads. And so let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the talking heads? What was, what was your introduction to this band and what have they meant to you over the years? When I was about 12 or 13 in the um, small Southwestern Ontario town I grew up in, I had kind of a mentor who was a local singer songwriter um, named Scott Merritt, who sort of struck up a correspondence with me and we wrote letters back and forth. Um, I was kind of a, a lonely kid at the time and it meant a lot to have an older person who took an interest. Um, and at one point, in the correspondence, I asked him, I think I'd been rambling on about some kind of music that I was listening to. And I asked him what music he listened to and what was important to him. And he sent me back a short list, um, which was started off by the statement, I don't listen a lot to any one music, but when I do, I listen very closely, which I think actually in itself was kind of an influence on me, the idea that there was such a thing as listening very closely. Um, but there was sort of a paragraph long list that um, became kind of foundational to my tastes over the next couple of years. I forget everything that was on it now. It was, it's in a box somewhere. But one of the things that I realized this week is on it um, was David Byrne and Brian Eno's My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And so I sought that out as I did many of the things on this list before I had listened in any serious way to anything else by Talking Heads, I think I must have also seen the Once in a Lifetime video on TV by that point um, and maybe had heard other things here and there. But that was kind of my entry point, which is an unusual entry point, of course, to Talking Heads. It's like my life in the bush of ghosts, this strange sound collage, um, sort of faux African, faux, faux Middle Eastern sound collage with all of these uh, well, all of these found radio recordings and things like that. Um, so that was my entree. And then I think from there, I probably, I don't remember whether I picked up Fear of Music or Remain in Light next. I think it was Fear of Music. Um, and that was, that was the starting point. And I was kind of immediately arrested by it. I, I had had some vague awareness of Brian Eno before that because I was sort of, through branches of like classic rock listening, I'd stumbled across like Robert Fripp albums and that kind of thing. And, and knew Brian Eno's name um, because I was a close reader of album credits. Mm. Um, and so, so that intrigue was there, but I think as soon as I um, listened closely to, to David Byrne at all, there was an immediate sense of identification. I was kind of a kid who was just transitioning out of, um, obsessive science fiction reading into kind of obsessive modernist literature reading. And so uh, Talking Heads really suited that frame of mind. And, um, and there was, you know, I was encountering a lot of new things at the time. It was really new wave. The new wave period was kind of around when I was getting into music out of, you know, sort of pre-adolescent, Beatles obsession before that mm -hmm. kind of exclusively. And then a couple of transitional things out. Um, but, but new wave music was coming on the radio and, um, and that there was a lot of that um, reaching me at the time. And David Byrne really stood out from the crowd as kind of a unique voice in that period of time. And the sense of um, 
what people would call alienation, of course, for a 12 or 13 year old is a pretty potent thing. But I think the other thing that really struck me and, and made Talking Heads, if not the most important, certainly a very signal band in my in the development of my tastes was that it was such obvious um, anxious, nervous white person music, mm-hmm. um, which I think became which I think became something that I sought out and and still am always very drawn to um, the particular East Coast um, blend of blend of what it is to be a neurotic person. You know, I was a reader of a lot of New York at the time and in some ways in some ways felt like a kind of displaced new yorker in my imagination mm. and um, and so the the imaginary landscape of downtown new york at the time and this as this kind of dangerous but creative ferment kind of place was important to me and and then the talking heads seemed to connect very easily to visual arts and things like that that I was reading about and performance art I was reading about. So all of that kind of tied together and and made Talking Heads a really good bridge into things I'd be interested in um, for a long, long time to come. is a unique thing about the talking heads that they really are this kind of perfect band for the highly literate kind of awkward teenager who who feels that anxiety of not necessarily you know not necessarily loneliness but but almost feeling like i i, I don't really know where i fit in and that was certainly my experience. And it's interesting hearing you kind of in many ways describe the same thing. When I think about my exposure to the talking heads when I first got into them, it was very much that same thing that there is, there is a nervous energy. There, there is a neuroticism at the core of it, certainly who David Byrne is, but, but really who this band is that, that does, whether it's in the lyrics or in the music or just the performative awkwardness of David Byrne on stage, all of it kind of, it's the, it's the perfect soundtrack to that often awkward, unsettled, anxious period of growing up, especially in those teenage years where you're kind of figuring out who you are and where you fit in, in the world. And, and and there's 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 truly it's a gift I think to have a band like the Talking Heads as you're going through that season of life 
to provide that soundtrack and, and again to do what great music does which is to make you feel like you're not alone in feeling the ways that that you're feeling and i think there's something really affirmational about the way you know a lot that's a subject that lots and lots of artists come at but i think that something about the talking heads was that they married that with this kind of deliberate ordinariness you know that like what they're not doing is presenting something you know at, at, at most points there are exceptions but they're not presenting something exotic it's very grounded in this very kind of like workaday kind of reality um so it's accessible and, and affirming in the way that that a lot of art like that isn't and it gives you that illusion that i think is really important in pop culture that you could almost have said those things yourself, you know, that you almost have those insights yourself, but not quite. And there's, they're speaking something that you feel rumbling in your own head, but that you, that you couldn't put together in the same way. And, and that kind of exaggerated everyman persona, which, you know, in lots of ways, I think was very constructed on Burns part and very deliberate um, from the band, you know, they were, they were trying not to seem like, the other bands at CBGBs, they were not like putting on leather jackets and getting, you know, extreme haircuts and tattoos and things. They were, they were very deliberately, you know, long before the words normcore <laughs> were <laughs> portmanteaued, they were doing that. And, um, and so that, that relationship to everydayness combined with this very sophisticated, you know, very art school kind of way of um, being able to deconstruct the realities that they were talking about um, really, really felt like an accessible entree while not being, you know, while not being dull at the same time. Yeah. I, I like everything everyone's saying and it's making me have a lot of thoughts. I'm going to, I'm going to work this out best I can. For me, it's funny hearing all this because all the stuff about David Byrne writing about alienation and stuff didn't dawn on me until like much later when I started hearing much smarter people talk about it. Because to me, like I just saw like the once in a lifetime video and I was like, this is just fun. It's fun music. It's fun sounding. He looks like he's having a lot of fun performing it. This is fun. It, it took me a while to, to figure out, you know, what was really going on. And at that yeah, point, I mean, I think I had a bit of an advantage in like encountering it musically before their videos and things were quite as ubiquitous. Like I right. think once in a lifetime might've been out, but it hadn't really established itself as a, like a staple of music video channels and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much I'd seen it. And then all of the other videos that follow, like established this kind of like wacky side, but like, I think, you know, particularly hearing my life in the bush of ghosts and fear of music first, that yeah. tension was so palpable to me. For sure. And I think what I was responding to as a youngster was, and it's not, it's something I wouldn't have been able to articulate then, but the fact that it was kind of equal parts punk and P funk, like they were very much inspired by funk music and funk bands. And that's a big part of, uh, more songs about building and buildings and food and fear of music 
up to remain in line. I mean, they have Bernie Worrell playing with them right by the time they get to stop making yeah. sense. Like <laughs> yeah. the, the guy from P Funk, you know. So like it's it's very much part of what they're into. So I think having like the kind of rebelliousness of of punk and also just kind of the 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 freedom and the liberation that I think comes with funk particularly the the parliament funkadelic brand of funk is something I responded to just this kind of liberating thing you know you can dance however you want to sing however you want to about whatever you want to I think that was something that was really attractive to me as a young person and then you know and it sounds like it should have all these kind of parliament funkadelic mythologies in the lyrics but then you look at it and it's more part social realism part modernism or postmodernism, data kind of stuff and you're like well now this just keeps getting interesting you know, there, there are a lot of these talking answers just like this like that magician scarts that you just keep pulling you're like well there's a lot to discover here Kai and I, as we have been trying to figure out what is the best representation, what album of the Talking Heads is the best representation of who this band is. And so I want to go now to the kind of centerpiece of this three album run they do with Brian Eno, Fear of Music. And this really is that first album where, I mean, you come out of the gate with Izembri, this this song that's letting you know right up front at the start of Fear of Music, this album is an album influenced by the whole world. All of these different influences are coming through on this album. And if there's anything you could say about this album, it is this. They are not anything like the other bands they came out of a scene with at CBGB. They, they are nothing like any of these other groups in what they're trying to do. And Fear of Music feels like the statement that they're making about that as some of these other groups are, are getting popular. So I want to ask you kind of what is your impression of Fear of Music? And then I want you and Micaiah to maybe talk through some of the things you really love about this album because Fear of Music is Micaiah's favorite Talking Heads album. I mean, the thing about Fear of Music to me, it's on the knife's edge of that transition, right? You know, I mean, there's there's definitely hints of it on more songs. Um, and, and I think one of the influences that, um, you know, is a less arty factor involved um, is, that, um, is that the cover of Take Me to the River became their biggest 
song that that they'd ever done up till that point. Um, I forget where it charted, but like somewhere in the like low twenties on the on the singles chart, which is which I only found out much later. It was still kind of remarkable to me. Um, I feel like there must have been some short list of radio stations that played it an enormous amount in order to like get it past all the stations that wouldn't have played it at all. But um, when they came to fear of music, that moment must have been in their minds in a lot of ways and thinking like we, we hit something there and we got a response and we're all interested in, in funk music and we're all interested in world musics and what can we do? Um, And I think there was a little bit of pushing back against, um, against the sort of disco sex movement going on as well. They were kind of trying to say like, we, we like dance music. I think that was one of the things going on. And so, and so they enter and fit into fear of music with something beyond. And they also had run out of songs at that point. Like that's another part of the story of fear of music is like everything they'd written in that period coming out of art school in Rhode Island, moving to New York, kind of fucking around for a while and finding out um, all the, all those songs were depleted at the end of the first two albums. And so they had to kind of start from scratch and the idea that they could reinvent themselves a little bit, I think was appealing. And so there's this new, you know, they were always experimental in an art school kind of way, but I think there's a more literally experimental sense of like, how do we build songs you know, differently than we did when maybe David came in with like an acoustic guitar version of a song and we worked it up. It started to be more like, let's find a riff and start with that. Um, Let's find maybe a template that we know from some other music and see if we can like mimic that groove and find our own version of it. And so I think they were in really new territory with Eno there to sort of um, make that feel safe as like the exper- experienced producer and the sort of more knowledgeable studio person and all of these kinds of things. I think it was the beginning of a real transformation. The other thing I feel really strongly about is that like that transformation was not yet as it sort of became on Remain in Light, a transformation away from the four person rock band, which in Remain in Light, that starts to change um, or radically changes in a lot of ways, but like fear of music is a talking heads album in a, in a very, very much the way that the first two albums are talking heads album. It's the four of us making all this sound, organizing it, figuring out how to organize it. Um, And there's a clarity to that, that I really appreciate. Fear of Music in in many ways is kind of the last Talking Heads album. It is the last of the Talking Heads albums that feels like a full band. That that it's this group of friends from RISD that came that you know that came to New York together. And, I mean, and- I think I think there's a lot of nuance to be argued in there, and I think that certainly, like you know, Chris and Tina have made their feelings very clear about how their contributions to later albums were kind of discounted, but the process was definitely different and the, and the output was different and the, the feeling of you can identify that these are the four members of the band entirely clearly. 
Yeah. I mean, it, on Fear of Music is definitely different than what came later. Even though I, I know that Remain in Light gets kind of all of the greatest theme, and maybe that's because it has the great Talking Head song, you know, maybe Once in a Lifetime. That might be maybe their most recognizable song, if not Burning Down the House, maybe. Um, but I love Ezimbra. I love that it is like the, there's something very rock and roll about it, but it's not a rock song. And um, it's not in any actual language either and that that's a very interesting thing to do too because it, it one in like maybe it's appropriating something but it's also completely inventing something else which is its own language um yeah and that's just interesting and, and david Byrne in american utopia american utopia talks about like was it um hugo ball right and yeah yeah the poet and the all the yeah, I mean, in some in some ways, it's appropriating two different things, right? It's appropriating this kind of African groove, and it's also appropriating like a hundred year old data poem from like right. the early avant-garde. I mean, I guess not a hundred years old at that point, only like what uh, sixty year old or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's taking two things from totally different contexts and mashing them together. I mean, there's a weird way. I sometimes feel weird about that song because some somewhat in the same way as with some things on my life in the Bishop Ghosts, you're like, do people listening to that think that that's an African language and not understand it's a nonsense language made up by somebody in Europe? Um, but then when you discover that trick, I mean, it's 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 a very appealing one to like. You know, again, that like kind of precocious teenage thing. Oh, I figured out what they did. And it is a clever yeah. thing to do. And it sets up kind of the, you know, I was talking about that thing of instability of meaning. And it kind of sets up that, which is a big theme all over the album, I think. And that, mm-hmm. and, you know, so it's very clever on that level, whatever critiques you might make out of it politically. Yeah, agree. And yeah, just, and I think it might be one of their best album openers also. But then you get into these like, the next couple tracks, Mind and Paper, are very rock and roll. Um, and they're they're like really edgy. Um, and it's it just seems like a darker path for them tonally. Um, that I really enjoy. Yeah, mine mine just has a really funky groove. I know it's a good groove. I love I love the riff. I love Tina's bass on it, it's real funky. And uh yeah. I mean, I, 
I mean, I wish I was smarter and could say something smarter about it, but I just really like the way it sounds. And it's kind of a great kind of indicator of like what the band is in terms of, like I was saying, equal parts punk and P-funk. Um, you can really hear on there better, I think, you can than um, previous records. Yeah, no, I think that what you're saying about fear of music is really important. Like, to me, one of the things that's distinctive about that album, like, different than the kind of stripped downness there was in the first two albums, this album is just cold and clear a lot mm-hmm. of the time. And it doesn't have, you know, there are layers here and there. There's definitely a funk, but there's a clarity. You know, it's like that, it's like that damn black cover with its like diamond steel cut pattern. It's, it's got this kind of like, this is what the thing is. And it goes with those like single word song titles too. It's like mind paper, you know, all of that. That's so, you know, and maybe I, maybe I read too much into those external signifiers first coming to it too. And so interpreted it through those signals, but like, I, I really felt like each of these songs is an idea. The idea is executed. Mm-hmm. And then we leave the idea and move to another idea. And the, the fact that the parts are so delineated and there are effects and there are treatments and loops. I mean, not literal loops, but loop like things here and there, but it's not the overall feel of the album. The feel that you have is like a little bit more that each song is like sculptural or something like that. be the best talking head song life during wartime to me is like a quintessential talking heads track it's one of the best ones they perform live in any version of that that you've heard or seen and it just seems to be like i mean it has all the image right the Carl, like you were talking about like 1970s new york to kind of like the danger around it but also like the booming art scene you know i mean just how perfect is it when you have talking heads you know this ain't no party. This ain't no disco. Ain't no, you know, mud club or CBGB. 
you know, just like really puts you, I mean, it's, I mean, especially for you know, someone who grew up kind of like really appreciating CBGB and have always looked back on it romantically. It's, it's kind of a great document that says, you know, a, says a great deal about that time, even though I probably still look at the track more romantically than it is also because <laughs> uh, it's life during wartime. And all I think about is like, Oh man, could you imagine sharing that disgusting toilet with the Ramones and talking heads and Lou Reed popping in? Like I still missed it because I just love that era so much. Um, but yes, it's, you know, talks about a lot of the Nixon administration. It's, it's just packed. It's like, it's, it's one of like the, not just great talking heads tracks, but like great kind of statements about the seventies right there in 1979, kind of looking back and be like, absolutely. All right, now, now that we're at the other end of this, right. Let, let, let's do a recap. And also in terms of like music, like where do we go from here? Yeah. And I think that like, it's also, I mean, I'm kind of, I, I'm kind of with you. Um, maybe partly because at this point in history, I have trouble hearing um, once in a lifetime as a song rather than just as a like phenomenon in the world. Um, But yeah, I'm kind of with you that, that it's probably the greatest talking head song life during wartime. Um, But it's also, you know, everything you're saying is right. And at the same time, I think it's key to the album to the, to the like anxiety that permeates the album in that, like this was just at the point that like the cold war was heating up more and the Reagan era was, was about to dawn. And as a child during that period of time, I know that myself and my peers were all fucking terrified of nuclear war constantly. Mm -hmm. And to me, that paranoia, that fear really permeates a lot of fear of music. Like that's one of the fear, like one of the fears that fear of music is about is a fear that like the world is going to become uninhabitable and, and life during wartime is a vision of that. And, mm-hmm. and romantic. Yes. In the sense that it's like, what if we could be the plucky survivors who somehow battle back and like either prevent this or, or survive it and, and eke out an existence underground in some way, like all of those, images of the time are permeated through there, but it's permeated through other songs too. Like paper, you know, is, it's a song that where radiation is kind of this presence all the time, you know, lots of things are, I think the paper metaphor moves all the time, but there's all this thing about rays passing through paper and that, you know, you could just think of that as like developing photographs, but you could also think of it as like radiation coming through your skin. Like there's all, there's that kind of sense in in all of these elemental things on the album that seem like threats and mm-hmm. and life during wartime is is the moment where that comes out of metaphorical existence into this like real fantasy of of warfare um but this fantasy that like a bohemian new yorker is having so it's also like you know it's like uh, one of the big problems is that like i can't go to mud club anymore you know because right. I, I have to keep moving and stay away from the windows and i can't go out dancing anymore like there's all of that kind of such and like you know there's the art you know there's lots of talk about art making on the first two albums and on this album you've got that 
moment on life during wartime, which is, you know, as a writer, one of my favorite things is like burned all my notebooks. What good are notebooks? They won't help me survive. You know, like all of that. There's, it's all playful in a way, but it's, it's deadly serious at the same time. Yeah. And then from there, uh, memories can't wait. Uh, another solid track with the, the, there's their live like the live version on um the name of this band's talking heads might be better. Um, yeah, it's great. That that song just rules. I think as good as life during wartime, and I I I agree with all of the things you both said about what a great song it is. I find myself more and more enjoying memories can't wait the most of any song on Fear of Music. Mm-hmm. In, well, it's a great side one closer. It, well, that's the thing. I think that it works. I think that life during wartime into memories can't wait as the side one closer of this album. It, memories can't wait. I don't think would hold up as well for me if it didn't follow life during. Wartime. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause it, this, this anxious energy that is so present in life during wartime like it's almost memories can't wait almost becomes like this this like sweet refrain from all this nervous energy it is i mean still like an exciting song like there's there's tons of energy in the song but it 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 doesn't feel as paranoid as life during war i don't know about that i don't know about that i think it's i mean i agree with you that it's a real powerful one too i'd kind of until listening back to fear of music for the first time in a long time to get ready to have this conversation, it had kind of faded in my mind a little bit because it doesn't have as like distinct a conceptual hook as a lot of the songs do, mm-hmm. but, but listening sonically to what happens between life during wartime, which is this real driving groove. Like it's like, you know, propulsive. It's so it's so like relentlessly and then memories can't wait. It's like the bomb has gone off mm-hmm. and you're kind of in the devastation yeah. after that. And this person is stumbling around with like very little control over his mind at that point. And the music is kind of like swooshing around and it's very dark. And there's a nice melodic hook. But aside from that, it's really, really grim. And the other thing that's really, and I'm a little indebted, I took a look back into Jonathan Leatham's book about fear of music this week. Mm. And like one of the points that he makes is that like in in, um, life during wartime, the conflict is external and you're kind of fighting this like, yeah, slightly romantic urban guerrilla battle. And then suddenly memories can't wait. The battle is internal. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's you, you are not outside of the disaster anymore. You are the disaster. <laughs> and, and I, it's, it makes it, it makes it something that can follow something as strong as life. During. Like I would have thought, I didn't remember how the, how the sides closed and I would have, um, I would have thought that life during wartime had to close side one. Cause what do you put after that? And it's like, Oh, you put this kind of like dark, more 
internalized slower coda afterwards and that's what can stand up to it and also instrumentally it's really strong like i'd forgotten how how powerful the music of memories can't wait is i i love that you mentioned mentioned the kind of this you know that kind of nuclear fear and then you get to memories can't wait and the bomb has gone off yeah and and i don't know if you'll relate to this at all um from from a life in canada um but makai and i are both from florida and one of the things that played a huge role in every summer and fall of my childhood was hurricanes. So you'd yeah. have, you'd, you'd have, you know, tropical storms out in the Atlantic and then it turns into a hurricane and it's getting closer and gets closer. And there's all this build, there's all this like building anxiety, building anxiety. And then, and then, you know, it's coming, you get to that last two days where, you know, all right, it's coming for us. And so, you know, you, you board up the windows and you do all the, like you do all you the, get some peanut butter to last a couple of days. Yeah. You, you <laughs> fill up the bathtub with water in case, you know, you run out of clean, like you, you do all these preparation things, but then there's this moment where everything is done that, that there's, mm. there's nothing else you can do to prepare for it. Everything, everything that you can do, every outlet for all that nervous energy is gone. And it's the strangest feeling. And, 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 and it's been true. You know, I, I can think about it so many different times in my life. There's those hours between everything for preparation is done. And now you're just riding out a storm. Yeah. And it's almost like now that the storm's finally here, it, it it was there was so much buildup. There was so much pressure and anxiety about what could come that it's almost like now that it's here. It it even though you're in the midst of an awful natural disaster, it almost feels like relief now that it's here because because at least you don't have to live in the anxiety and fear of it anymore. And and that's really that kind of one two punch you get with life during wartime and memories can't wait. That's what that feels like for me. Do you remember anyone here? No, you don't remember anything at all. I'm sleeping on out of my back. Never woke up, I woke up. I think without a doubt, the most consistent single side of any Talking Heads album is the side A of Fear of Music. Those mm-hmm. those six songs, but especially starting with Isabra yep, and with closing with Cities, Life During Wartime, Memories Can't Wait. It, it is the most consistent 
maybe the best single side of of any Talking Heads record. That being said, side one is so good. I can't. <laughs> I, I the the drop off into side two on this album it is so disappointing for me. Well, I'll tell you why it's disappointing, especially after hearing you say that, like, oh, well, you know, then it comes and that actually, that's actually some relief. But then you get to air and it's like, air can hurt you. Yeah. Even air can hurt you. <laughs> you know, so, I don't, so uh, whatever relief, I guess, Rob, you thought you had, um, you know, what is happening to my skin? Where's that protection that I needed? Air can hurt you too. You're not going to get it on side too, bud. So I mean, I think the, I think the way that Rob's, both right and wrong is that there's, there's definitely a clear distinction between side one and side two. And it's mm-hmm. even there with air, even though air is about many of the same um, threats and menaces that side one is about, it strikes a different tone. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, they don't, don't do this on the album for obvious reasons, but like the the encapsulation of the difference between air and the things on side one is like um, is like I think in the live versions of the chorus where where instead of saying some people say not to worry about the air, some people don't have experience about the air, the line is some people say not to worry about the air, some people don't know shit about the air. Yeah, <laughs> and there's yeah. there's the humorous side of of Burns sensibility comes mm-hmm. back full force on side two and like the paranoia th- that side one like really centers gets alleviated in various ways on side two i mean i would make an argument for side two that all of those jokes are me- and this is like really me stretching to make a justification, but it's also what I really felt when I was listening to it as a teenager, that all of those jokes are at the end of side one after memories can't wait. Our protagonist, if we imagine there's a single protagonist, like moving through the album has now fully lost his mind. And everything that happens on side two is a psychotic person relating to the world rather than just the nervous person that we have on side one. And so the humor is like unhinged all the time. Mm -hmm. And like Mm -hmm. some people don't know shit about the air is a good way to put that. And then like the paranoia about animals and like, you know, all of these things on side two that the weird fantasy of heaven, like all of these things, they're funny but they're only really funny if you don't mean them. And if you imagine the protagonist means it, then it's even more disturbing than side one. Right, 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 (laughs) right. Now, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned the live version of air because if anyone were going to knock me for choosing fair music as the best is because when I look at it, I'm like, well, the stop making sense version of life during wartime is probably the best version of that song. The, the I would say, I would say that's the like only like soundtrack version from stop making sense. That is definitively the best version of a song of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I look at like memories can't wait air and drugs, the live versions of the name of this band's talking head versions of those. They might just be only the expanded version though. Um, I might like those better. 
Um, also, and the heaven version on Stop Making Sense is also like so iconic. So if anyone were to knock me, I would say that some of my favorite versions of these songs might be the live version. But it's also because I love the song so much so that any version of the song I'm going to enjoy because there are a couple live versions of all these songs and I, I love them all. In concert, Heaven serves a different function than it does right. on the album. Right. Like it, it really like it's like here's now now's the time for the slow dance, <laughs> you know. But mm-hmm. like, but on on Fear of Music, it's just another scenario. Which I guess is what brings us to uh, animals. Uh, is that <laughs> this this is one where I'm like listening to it for a while. I was like, I don't think I like this one as much as the others. Um, it's because this this one for me, I'm like, this is this is pretty bonkers. Um, my only thing I can say about this one is that it just reminds me of um, the character of Enoch Emery in Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood who goes to the zoo and he's like, look at the animals just looking at us. Like, I hate them. Why are they looking at me? And then he eventually, um, you know, there's a man dressed as a gorilla in front of a movie theater promoting a movie, you know, an ape movie. And then he like assaults that guy, takes the gorilla costume, then lives his life as an ape. So this is the best, this is the best possible reading of this song. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah, so so now that I've tied it to to Flannery O'Connor, which if if you ever can make that leap, you know, um, now I enjoy it. Um, but it is, I mean, uh, I think it's for me. It's like a, it's David Byrne at his most like slightly dubiously good stand up comedian level, and on the on the flip side, like where I would defend it more is it's our psychotic protagonist, right? It's yeah. like, mm-hmm. it's like where this person is so confused about his relationship to humanity and civilization that, and I think this is 
clear in the song is like one of the things it's about is like a romantic version of the natural world where it's like, you know, sort of Rousseau level going like we're, we're fallen from our natural state. Yeah. And the song is saying, is that natural state actually better than civilization, better than our human lives? Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe animals are also completely fucking absurd, but at the same time, the person stating it is so over the top that it's again, like, you know, they're making a fool of us. Like the yeah. idea that animals have some like I- idea that their that their way of uh, behaving naturally is just to parody human beings. Right. So it's a, like complete through the looking glass moment. Right. Right. And there is, and the music is, the music has like an interestingly like stop and start funkiness to it. Like there's a little bit of like foreshadowing of the like facts bit on, on remain in light that kind of like rap, like repetition thing. But in this case, in like an absurd mode. um, Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I mean, we're now in the, the, the part of the album where the two worst songs take place, but like animals, I think I still enjoy. And like, there's also a part of me. And this is another thing that I get from Jonathan Lethem's book that I hadn't thought of is like the, the one word titles on, um, on fear of music. And some of the lines on fear of music call back potentially dark side of the moon with the similar one word titles with like time mm-hmm. and money and this kind of thing. And then on a later Pink Floyd album, they have their animal song, which is the most fucking pretentious animal song, which I think <laughs> comes out before this one. And in mm-hmm. some ways, I wonder if they're going like, if Burn was at all, like I'm aware of Pink Floyd doing this, like animal farm kind of animals song about politics. And I'll just like write a, a song about how animals are stupid. Like, I wonder right. if there's some, some playing around. going there. Right. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Looking, commenting on Prague. Um, and, and oddly, this song seems to point to other concerns he has on the last talking heads record. When you like the album naked with the animal on the cover, Oh yeah, and, and songs like "Nothing But the Flowers" and "Totally Nude," where he sings things like "I miss the grocery stores and 7-Eleven. Um, But uh, and I'm with you as you said earlier. Uh, last two tracks, uh, worst two tracks. Um, I mean, no, I, no, I, not I, the last, not the last two tracks. The second last two tracks. Drugs, drugs is not drugs is not one of the worst tracks. Okay, but so, elect, electric guitar and animals are like on. I'm with on, you. On shaky ground. <laughs> and I'll tell you what saves drugs for me is um, the live version. Again, there, and what's, what's on the live version that's not in the studio, it's, it's in there. It's in the mix, but it's so low. that kind of like the voices and like they're like chimes or something. There's something just like really kind of funky, really experimental, really fun that's buried in the mix on the studio album that like is in front of the mix. Like I kind of agree with you that the mix on drugs is not perfect. It's kind of indisputably the most remaining light song on this album. Like it's, it's the most unified. It's the most layered. It's the most atmospheric. 
the mix is a little off and it's surprising to me that it hasn't been corrected more in yeah. later versions of the album but like the sonics on drugs are great and i also really like the vocals on drugs they're just a little in the background and the lyrics are a little bit um buried there's also not that many of them but that's okay but like i feel like one of the most iconic burn moments in the whole album to me is like the beginning of when the vocal comes in on drugs which is like a minute in and he's got like all i see all i see Let's talk about Remain in Light. At the end of Fear Music, Brian Eno, and, and probably this is indicative of, of the experience of them doing this album together, Brian Eno had basically decided he was not going to do another Talking Heads album after, after Fear of Music. And, you know, Chris and Tina have kind of had enough of, uh, of, of David and they take off to the Caribbean for for a, for a much deserved vacation. And Brian Eno and David go do this album together. And we have essentially 15 months between the recording of Fear of Music and the recording of Remain in Light. And in that period of time, David and Brian, Brian Eno and David Byrne have done an album together. Um, you know, Tina and Chris have spent this time uh, in the Caribbean, you know, experiencing Jamaican music and Haitian music and, you know, all of these different, all these different rhythms, Jerry in the 15 months has produced an album for another artist. So everyone's kind of gone to their separate corners to do their own thing. But well, do you know that, do you know the story? No, please. Told? I'd love I to don't, hear it. I don't know. I don't know for a, a thousand percent whether this has been confirmed, but it's been told from both sides of the divide, I think, which is that um, David and Eno had had some kind of conflict in the late stages of making my life in the bush of ghosts. And they weren't speaking to each other, hmm. which is part of why that album wasn't finished yet when they made remain in light. And, um, and Chris and Tina had um, been fighting about whether to continue on with Talking Heads. Uh, Tina saying no and Chris saying yes. And Chris eventually won that fight. 
they said, well, how are we going to do this now? Because David doesn't seem interested. And he has this problem with Eno. And so what they did, and I think this is, they had come back from Jamaica. I think they eventually went back to Jamaica to work on, or to the Bahamas to work on, um, to work on Remain in Light in the end. But the way that they kickstarted Remain in Light is that um, Chris and Tina called Brian and said, hey, we're just over here at the loft jamming. Do you want to come? And Brian said, as is his want, he's like, well, I don't jam. I don't even really play an instrument. And they're like, we don't care. Just come over and you can make some weird synth sounds and whatever. Like, we're just working on stuff and it's going really great. So he was like, okay, okay, I'll come over. And then they called David and they were like, Eno is here and he's jamming with us. And the way that the story is told is more like um, a, a Warner Brothers cartoon where the minute that they said that to David, he like basically left the like phone receiver hanging in the air and was like, <laughs> and it was like at the loft the moment that he knew that Ida was there so that his position wouldn't get ex- usurped by Eno, and so that's how they started doing the jams that led to remain in light it does make sense because it there is an approach to remain in light that feels new for the band whether it's the roles in the band changing whether it's the you know different input changing it is a different album and you can hear that this is a band that is working differently together than how they had started. I think there's a way that the process differences between the two albums are a bit exaggerated because I think they had started kind of working in this way on Fear of Music. There are ways in which for the first time on Fear of Music, songs were being built out of the band jamming in a way that hadn't happened before that. Mm -hmm. But the big difference between the two albums is that now the jams were everything like there, there was no kernel before the jams and the ways that the songs were assembled after the jams were by using the studio as an instrument to a degree they'd never used the studio before, like in a classic kind of Brian Wilson, George Martin kind of way. We just have a bunch of tape and the tape is the beginnings of the songs. Oh, I want this time. 
One of the things I find compelling about Remain in Light, one of the things you've been talking about is how in many ways Fear of Music is an album that is kind of looking back at everything that was in the 70s. The, you know, you know, some of the Nixon stuff, you know, the end of, uh, you know, end of a war, um, a lot of the things that were going on uh, in terms of, um, you know, some economic fears. I mean, just, just a kind of album that is in some ways looking back and commenting on the decade that had just passed. Huh. And, and maybe this is, maybe this is completely anachronistic of me, but I, I hear in remain in light, a looking forward, um, not, not in a way that is any less uh, anxious and I, I especially think about, you know, born under punches and cross-eyed and painless as, you know, as, as kind of examples of that is that you, you get these songs that are lyrically this kind of unhappy, not unhappiness, this, this fake happiness, this like, here's the American dream, you know, in, in, in the, the song once in a lifetime does such a great job kind of making this point but the album as a whole feel, you know, seem, seems to be like, there's, there's this dream that isn't real. And here's all of the ways in which we're going to smile and pretend that it is. And, and that's so much of what I hear on the first five tracks of, of remain in light. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you're, I'm, I, I would, I feel like, Fear of Music is. Fear of Music is. I mean, they're all every Talking Heads album up till Speaking in Tongues. I would say things change radically after Speaking in Tongues, but up till Speaking in Tongues, I would say that one of the skills that the Talking Heads have is that they speak very much to their moment. But I would say Fear of Music is much more about looking back over the past few years and talking about it. I feel like Remaining Light, one of the strong points in its favor, despite the fact that it's not an album as I like as much as Fear of Music, is um, it's very prescient about what is going to happen over the coming years. You know, this comes out in 1980 before Reagan is elected, mm-hmm. like it's 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 an album about the Reagan eighties that's made at the very beginning of that process, and it seems very sharp about what that's all going to be about. And um, yeah, I think it's left behind talking about the past. I think it's very much about like this is what I see right in the present. This is how we see it evolving both in positive and negative ways. Like, I think it's a much more optimistic album than fear of music, but it also is full of portents at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I don't, I mean, I know there are reference points. I know that there's like the John Dean speech things that like burn is always drawing from like found sources and that kind of thing. But I think, I think for the most part, it's really, really about 1980, and it's pretty smart about like from there to 1984. Like, yeah. pretty smart. 
Yeah, I agree. And in so then there's also some things that I like about it as as a musician. I there are things that um, there are technical to this album, and it's one of the things that I think you also hear as you look at a career of a band that spans a period of time that is technologically significant because I think, and we see this a lot in a band like the Beatles and and you see what changes for them as they really learn to use the studio, that the studio becomes, you know, a, a, a toy for them to play with. And there are some things on remain in light. I think one, you have Adrian blue, playing playing on on this album the guitar player from from uh, king crimson who also is kind of a, a famous session musician like he joined king crimson right around this time i'm yeah. not sure which came first yeah i mean it, yeah it could could be the one but 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 that's that's adrian blue that we're we're talking about and some of the work you know he he had worked as well with you know on David Bowie records. And, and so there's, there's some influence there, but the thing that I also, you begin to see, especially in a song like once in a lifetime or houses in motion um, in, you see it overused on the overload, which is overload is the worst song and remain in light, but you do see it used a lot. It's the, the first really major use of a digital reverb unit. So this is still during a period of time where bands, whether it was for the sake of vocals or guitars or drums, they were using, you know, giant halls or they would use like spring reverb tanks. And this is one of the first usage that we hear of, of a digital reverb unit, which essentially also allows, you know, Brian Eno and David Byrne to really take to an nth degree you know, some, some of the way that they echo some of the distance and the space that you hear on this album. And so there's some things technologically that I really enjoy on this album. The thing that you have to think about Brian, you know, at this period of time and kind of throughout his career, like even to today, mm-hmm. Brian, you know, is one of the most technologically savvy producers that there's ever been. Yeah. And that's true from Roxy Music onwards. And like one of the things, again, Remaining Light is not my favorite album, but one of the things about Remaining Light that is kind of undeniable is that like nothing sounds like this. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's because Brian, you know, is once he convinces talking heads possibly not to their benefit entirely as a band to go with him on the journey that he wants them to go with. He is better at using those studio tools than anybody in that contemporary scene that I can think of. You know, I mean, leaving aside the genius of certain like, DJs and remixers in hip hop at the time. But even then those people were still just figuring out their shit. And like Brian, you had had 10 years of figuring out what everything did and nothing sounds like this. I've, I went through a little search the past week going like, is there 
Jamaican music that sounds like this, like dub is clearly an influence on this album. Is there African music from the progressive African scene that Felicuti represents that really sounds like this? Is there even, I mean, the closest is funk and the closest is Parliament Funkadelic. Definitely like what those people were doing is close, but it's still more organic. It hasn't married itself to the Giorgio Moroder techniques that like, you know, is also super aware of like these realms of disco and funk were like melded, but like still there was some distances. Like there is a way in which this album is a producer bringing everything that anybody had available to them to bear. Mm-hmm. and making a sound that's very hard to find any exact parallels to. Lost my shit Trying to act casual Can't stop I might end up in the hospital Changing my shape And, and I think to to that point, you know, we were talking earlier about one of the arguments for for fear of music, and I was kind of you know saying that it, you know, it's kind of the last you know true Talking Heads Heads album. Maybe maybe Remain in Light is not a David Byrne Brian Eno album, but Remain in Light is an album where Brian Eno's Brian Eno's touch is much heavier. Then absolutely. I mean, like to me, it's like there are very good reasons that this didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you this if you know the story. What Brian Eno wanted the billing of this album to be was Talking Heads and Brian Eno. Oh, I did. And like, and an artistic level, I would say that he was justified. Obviously, that would have been a weird thing for the band. So the way the band responded to that, which I think is kind of brilliant, is that they sent their manager to go like, so Brian, um, this Brian Eno and Talking Heads album, what we're going to do after it comes out naturally is go on a nine-month world promotional tour. And Brian was like, "Um, but you know I don't tour. (laughs) And they were like, well, it would be weird for us to build this as a Brian Eno and Talking Heads album if you weren't there when we performed it in concert. <laughs> and he was like, okay, I'll take my name off the cover. <laughs> I like Brian Eno. Now, I'm also a huge U2 fan, and I love the work that Brian Eno has done with U2 over the years. And I love, um, you know, the Berlin trilogy he does with uh, with Bowie. I, I like Brian Eno as a producer. I, I do think that 
there are ways in which, like you said, remain in light doesn't sound like anything else. And it also doesn't sound like any other talking heads album, which I think is, is while it's one of the reasons I find this album so unique, the argument is probably that this may not be the best picture of who this band is because they really don't do anything like it before or after it. But also, I mean, you and I have different concerns about what kind of evaluation you're trying to use. Like if, if I actually thought the remaining light was the best talking heads album, I would say, you know, and also I also, I should say at this point in this conversation, I don't actually care about lists, but I'll, but I'm, (laughs) but I'm, I'm granting you care about lists, but like if remaining light was truly the best talking heads album, that should be what's on your list of best albums. Like it doesn't matter if it's been adulterated by foreign substances, right? Like it's, it's like, what's the best art and like, and there's a very good argument for this album being the best art they ever made. Like it's very high up there. I would say that the problem with this album to me is that the way that, you know, and burn, run away with it turns the songs into kind of an undifferentiated mass. And I think that um, it's a very good undifferentiated mass, but in contrast to fear of music, here I am getting into like our prematurely into the debate that we're supposed to get into in contrast to fear of music, fear of music each of those songs mean something to me in different ways, as our conversation earlier illustrated. On this album, aside from Once in a Lifetime, which is just a like kind of freak accident of Talking Heads history that like really was the thing that brought Talking Heads sensibility to the masses, you know, which for all the reasons that Remaining Light is good. Like, all those things are there. For me, with rare exceptions, this this album is just a set of examples of the same exercise done in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, that would be my critique as well. Is I mean, for at least for the first six tracks, the last two, you know, there's just a dramatic tempo change. Um, especially with the final track, but I that'd be my one critique too is that it, it's kind of it hits one note pretty hard for about 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and like, there's a very good argument to me that that's not a fault, but a like benefit. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, we just well, know, we just covered the remote, like, we, like that's yeah, what's or so like, the first or like James Brown, or like Parliament yeah. Funkadelic, like it's like all of the things that they're modeling themselves on do those things. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, it's only my own bias. Yeah. Like you could get another interlocutor on here who would say that's why it's the best because it does something great over and over again in different ways, beautifully. And it's such an organic whole. But to mm-hmm. me, I'm like, I have a bias towards song form I have a bias towards lyrics and I think on, I think the lyrics on remaining letter are pretty great, but I also think they mostly don't matter because that's 
what Eno's bias is. This like right. he doesn't care about lyrics that much. Whereas like on Fear of Music, lyrics matter a lot. You think about them a lot. On this album, I find it hard to remember what the lyrics are aside from two or three songs. Like, so those are my aesthetic biases. So I don't, I'm not claiming to make an objective case for which album is better, but I am making a case for like, which one, one is like a super great sonic construction that has a groove that you cannot fucking resist. I love it. And the other one is a bunch of songs that like I think about it a lot and I care more about that. Admittedly, I, I the writing's on the wall of, of which way that this uh <laughs> this 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 debate yeah. is going. <laughs> um so let let me ask this question and then we we like to close with, with one more question. But let me ask this. This will be our final question about talking heads. If the LP release of Stop Making Sense, if the if the companion album to go with the film included the entirety of the songs performed in the concert film would stop making sense be your favorite talking heads album. Okay. So, so I have a very clear opinion on this. The soundtrack album of stock making sense is definitely not the best way to listen hmm. to talking heads. The film of stop making sense is the very best way to okay. watch talking heads. But when you take the soundtrack separately from the film, the truth is that the live collection of the name of this band is Talking Heads. Those are mostly better live versions than what's on Stop Making Sense. There would be a way probably to edit that tour together, but like that's not what they did because it was just a couple of nights that they shot. Mm-hmm. And they didn't get the best. I think they might have got the best ever version of life during wartime. Agreed. In those two nights, that version had displaced the album version for very good reasons. But I think most of the name of this band is talking heads are better versions of those songs than you get on stop making sense. But the film is literally the best thing that talking heads ever did. I don't care about what's representative. Like you could, you could choose any of the albums. Like they, they're, they're all interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, Carl, we want to thank you so much for being with us. We like to close each interview with this question. 
we are a people who are constantly thinking about lists and the impetus of this whole podcast was the idea that every time you attempt to make a list of the best or your favorite, inevitably you forget one. You and, and so in many ways, this whole podcast is rooted in the idea that no matter who's put it together, whether it's Slate or Rolling Stone or Pitchfork, no matter what uh, media outlet is putting it together, anytime you attempt to make uh, any kind of greatest list, inevitably you will forget one along the way. And so this is our chance for our guests to give us their five best albums or their five most underrated albums or just five albums that they enjoy that they feel like don't get enough love and they want our listeners uh, to reach for next time they're at their local record store. As the kind of critic I am, I basically hate all of these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm not going to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give you five albums. Okay. And I'm also going to give you five albums plus one. Um, so the plus one, because we didn't get around to talking about it, is Angelique Kidjo's version of Remaining Light. Mm-hmm. This African artist bringing Remaining Light home, all this African music home. It's incredible to listen to because all the things that David Burns lyrics seem to not mean very much about, she somehow finds a way to make them political. She somehow Mm -hmm. finds a way to make them cultural. Like she loves the album and she wanted to remake it. This was like three years ago, four years ago. It's incredible. And it's one of, if there's any argument for why, Remaining Light should be the best Talking Heads album. She makes it. Yeah. So that's one thing. That's an album I had never heard before until just this last month as we were preparing for this episode. And um, I, I sent a text message to to Micaiah shortly after listening to it and said, I think she has the best version of Remaining Light, the album. That Yeah, that this- I think it's true. This Beninese artist does it, does a version of this album that elevates it beyond anything Talking Heads did with it. It's so weird how she makes it twice as meaningful. It's just striking. Yeah. And it's interesting about the cultural appropriation claims that people make. And she's like, no, I don't feel like that about it, but I'm going to claim it back. Like, she's not upset that it was made. Mm-hmm. She's just interested in what she can do with it. It's so interesting. Sometimes the world has a load of questions. Seems like the world knows nothing at all. But it's out of reach Some people touch it But it can hold on She Is moving to describe the world She Has messages for everyone She Is moving by remote control Hands 
So what I decided to do is what I would name as five lesser known albums I'd recommend to Talking Heads fans. Pierre Ubu, Dub Housing, 1978, right around the same time as Talking Heads. Now I'm going to go to a Canadian example from 1991, the band No Means No, who came out of the hardcore scene, but became the same kind of art rock, strident, speaking, speechifying, musical melding kind of thing. The album Zero Plus Two Equals One. Also from 1991, a band from Holland called The X with the cellist Tom Cora, an album called Scrabbling at the Lock, which again blends the kind of world music with anarchist punk rock in the early 90s in Europe. Literally one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, which includes a lot of uh, declamatory uh, speechifying. A band from Glasgow in the early 2000s called Life Without Buildings with the singer uh, Sue Thompson, an album called Any Other City, which like kind of reaches back to Izimbra in that there's like a lot of nonsense language. There's nothing better to listen to. And finally, um, from last year, a new band from England called Dry Cleaning, which is not so obscure, which had like talked a lot of uh, critics lists last year. But I, but I think that people who might be listening to a Talking Heads episode might not know about um, Dry Cleaning, New Long Leg, a kind of proto new wave post-punk kind of band, but with a 2020s kind of twist. So I recommend those five albums to you. For our listeners, I want to remind you that you can pick up Carl's book, his 33 and a third series on uh, Celine Dion's Let's love, Talk About Love. Talk About Love. Um, <laughs> the End of Tastes. <laughs> a Journey to the End of Taste is the, uh, is the subtitle of the book. Um, and Makai and I will both tell you it is worth a read and is deeply, deeply interesting. And if you can pick up the 2014 re-release of the book, um, with articles, um, by Chris Novoselic of Nirvana and, uh, um, Nick Hornby, one of our favorite writers as well. So we're so excited for listeners to get a hold of that book. And then of course you can read everything by Carl on Slate, um, including, even though he hates doing it, you can go back and read his top albums from the previous year. Good deal. But we never even asked the question, though. Fear of musical remain in light. I think it was obvious yeah. what my vote was, but yeah, fear of music.
Awesome. Hey, as the person who picked beer music, I just needed to hear it out loud. (laughs) But I also think it's a bit of a false choice. Like it's obvious what is better about remaining light than fear of music. But like fear of music is just the one close to my heart. I understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Carl, well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, have a great night. And uh, Mikhail will touch base to you whenever we're getting ready to release the episode, but it should come out sometime next week. I mean, this is a real compliment. Like to combine nerding out and being actually like entertaining and engaging is very hard. And you guys are good at it. Well, so we, like then I was like, I want to be on that. Yeah. Well, I, I can't, we can't thank you enough for it in, in such kind words. Carl, have, have a, a great good night. night. I did not think that this is where this was going to go, but I'm, I'm very glad. And one reason is because I've, I've been fearing is we're, we're trying to make our list you and I of the 100 greatest albums of all time. And lately we've had Aretha Franklin, never loved a man. You know, that that's of course, that's going to make it on there. And a couple other pretty obvious picks, especially season one, pretty clear purple rain revolver, you know, and later on we're going to have like things like pet sounds. So I'm, I, I was fearing though, are we just making everyone else's list? Except we also like death cab. So I'm really glad um, went in favor of a fear of music because now it looks like we're on a path that we are making our list uh, instead of just remaking all of the other canonical lists plus transatlanticism. I, I, I understand your point you're making. I'm really okay with this pick. My three favorite Talking Heads albums are all very, very close together. So it, it's not like I am brokenhearted that we're picking one over the other. And I agree with so many of the points that you and Carl made in our conversation. No Talking Heads album comes anywhere near the power of the concert film Stop Making Sense. Doing any Talking Heads album feels like an argument about second place. When what I really want to say is go watch this film. And I don't know what we do with that. I mean, I, I agree that the stop making sense concert film is, is the best artifact attributed to talking heads, but as a band, there also been, that's made a number of really great records. I mean, 77 more songs about buildings and food fear music remain in light speaking tongues and even little creatures. creatures. Yeah. You know, I love film, but, um, we're, we're talking about great records and we're talking about a band that has a number of great records. And from 1977 to, was it 85 has a really great run where there, there are three to four like picks are like, yeah, that could be, that could be it. That, that, that album could be, it could be remain alive. It could be more songs. But like there, it, this could have gone a few different ways where I wouldn't have been upset about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they they also make great records. So, and, but at the same time, like I, I do think that Fear Music is the best of the best, though. I think this is one of the great albums of all time. Um, I think it's 
the best album from one of the best and kind of greatest and definitely most influential American bands. Um, I think this is a good pick for us. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Listener, what about you? Did we get this pick right? What's your favorite Talking Heads album? Is your favorite Talking Heads album 77? Is it more songs about building food? Is it is it speaking in tongues? Uh, is it Remain in Light and we got this wrong? Uh, let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter at You Forgot One Pod, on Instagram at You Forgot One. Of course, our website, youforgotone.com. And if you like what you hear, um, follow us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and rate and review uh, because if you like it and you're rating and reviewing all that stuff, it helps other people find the show as well. And we will be back next week with a brand new episode and we will see you then. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack and you may find yourself in another part of the world and you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile and you may find yourself in a